As we see business being released from lockdown, I'm speaking with Kevin Ellis, who is chairman and senior partner at PwC. Kevin is not only leader of a company employing more than 200,000 people, but PwC advises other leaders on their strategies around the world. Welcome, Kevin. I would be fascinated to hear from you what best leadership practices you've seen and what you believe leaders should be thinking about as we emerge from this crisis. We always talk about communications. I mean, you know, leaders have to kind of communicate. Otherwise, there's no point having a strategy because if people don't understand the strategy and how they fit into the strategy, it will never be executed efficiently. Um, That's even harder when people are remote. Because actually, when people come into an office, there is a kind of a natural um, echo chamber of that strategy and ideas. Mm. Um, when everyone's working from home like we are today in front of our laptops, then extreme views become slightly more uh, of the norm and you end up with things getting a bit shrill. Mm. Um, and therefore, I think for us as leaders, it's really important to over communicate in many different mm. ways to ensure that your message is getting through and, and to do it in a very simplistic way. Mm. So I've, I've seen, I've been on a number of calls and things where um, it's quite complex to follow. And don't forget when people are at home, they're distracted by all kinds of things like family, noise, weather, what's going past in the street, everything else, text and whatever, which in a classroom or an auditorium or a business room, a meeting in their room, they're not. So, again, the the need to be regular, clear and simplistic in communication is even greater. Mm. I I go to another point, which I think is really important, and that is this is a black swan event. It's a completely unique time. And because we can't see everyone's faces quite so easily, um, I don't think you necessarily see your team the way you normally do. And I the need for us to really address the mental health challenge, I think has never been clearer. I think a lot of issues we've all known about and faced up to, whether they're climate change, whether they're fairness, whether they're the health service, and whether they're the stigmatization or destigmatization of mental health, I think they've all been brought to the fore by COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore I've regularly, we've been using uh, external psychiatrists to work with us to do webcasts, a lot of the webcasts I've done, I've actually shown the script to a psychiatrist ahead of it to say what are the messages that are really important to keep re-emphasizing. You know, things like structure, things like uh, doing something different at the weekend, um, things like having a break and walking outside during the day. All of these things are really important and you need to make them part of the norm. So it's important to have a psychiatrist doing a talk to people, but then you've got to take their language and turn it into your normal communications to remind people in a way that you probably haven't got to do in an office. Mm. I mean, in in years come past, I think many leaders were, were frightened that if people work from home, they'd actually not be particularly productive. And uh, I, our experience that in many cases, people have not been working less hard. They've actually been working harder during lockdown than they than they were when they were coming to an office have you experienced that yeah it's it's again really interesting i mean look at the end of the day the it's got to work um and i think we've invested heavily in our it as a business but and therefore we've been lucky enough that it has worked um 
there's an interesting social contract here. Um, and I've, I've seen it probably two forms. One is we're very clear that we're a people business. So our people come first and therefore the importance of telling people their jobs are safe because we know they're worrying about so many more things than they normally are. The human cost of this illness, the impact on family and the isolation factors being just three. So worrying about your job and your mortgage and putting food on the table is something that we can take off their shoulders uh, and say, look, your jobs are safe during this. Uh, we'll shoulder the burden. We won't furlough anyone. Um, and um, <clears throat> you'll be okay. Mm. So seemed like the right thing to do. But what's interesting is when I explain to my partners and they say, you know, should we have done more? Should we have been hard on our people? Is that the right thing to do and everything else? You know, are we being too soft? And you, you get that. Um, interestingly i said look it's a societal good but it's an economic good too because what i've witnessed is our activity levels are exactly the same over the last six weeks as they were for the same six weeks last year mm. but more fascinatingly our actual sick leave hasn't changed either <laughs> so either everyone stayed well during covid and that's good news but actually i think the other factor is the fact it hasn't spiked tells you that people haven't used it as an opportunity because like you say you're working from home, whether your children are ill and that keeps you at home, you can cope as well. And people are working around that. Mm -hmm. So I think the flexibility of home working is going to become more of a norm and more of a consequence of COVID. And the trust that goes alongside that, I think the fact that so many of us had to experience it, we probably never would have done in our working lives, mm. uh, is very positive too. But I think it going to goes back to that social contract with your employees. I mean, the most trusted cohort society is the employee trusting their employer. This has been a really good opportunity for employers to evidence that. And when we have done, it's been repaid tenfold. So do you think you're going to carry on certain practices after the lockdown has eased that you wouldn't have done without this experience? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, I think we've got to be, got to be careful there, right? So I've got a lot of people that are looking at working practices and uh, I've had this conversation with loads of other CEOs. Do we need the same footprint of office space in the future following the learning through COVID? Mm. Okay. And do, do we need them all to be in London? So a really easy example for everyone is how many phone banks or back offices are alongside the front office in London? Mm. Because they always have been. They have been for a hundred years. And if you talk about moving them, everyone says, you can't do that. They've got to be alongside the front office. Now we're all been working from home and it's worked. There hasn't been a disaster. There hasn't been an outage. It's worked. So that challenge is very much out there, not for my business, but for every business. Mm. And I've heard that many times over. So I think we've made some fantastic learnings about what we're possible, possibly able to do that we never thought we could do because of the experience of working from home. Uh, they will definitely come into play for a lot of organizations. I suspect it's later, not sooner, because our priority will be getting people back to work, back to normality as soon as possible and then overlaying the changes in due course rather than the other way around. And when there is a vaccine or herd immunity or, or both, do you think for your own organization, you will operate on a, on a much smaller head office, for example? Um, possibly, possibly. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think we will have more back office outside of the front office. I think we probably, it might actually aid the need to move the gravitational pull away from London, which I think is a good thing for the country and productivity in general. Mm. Um, and that will have an impact on cost base. I think also, um, 
I think a lot of our clients will change as well. So take the FS industry. You know, uh, for years, banks have wanted to have fewer branches, less cash, more credit cards and more home banking. The transformation we've all experienced there has been incredible. And that will happen now. So you've seen more in six weeks than we've achieved in 10 years in this country. And that will accelerate that. So that will change the model for our clients. I think there will be less just-in-time factory production and therefore more warehouses and more logistics as a consequence. And I think there will be probably more nearshoring of back office, be it phone banks, support operations and the like. Uh, and so businesses like ours, we've got a capability in Belfast, which we call PwC Operate, which is kind of a, a back office operating support for our business. I think that will grow enormously on the back of this, not just in Belfast, but in other parts of the country, because um, people won't want to go overseas and risk a more complex supply chain, having experienced what they've experienced. So mm -hmm. I don't think it's just about saving office space or spa saving square footage. It's more complex than that. I think it will actually change the model a bit mm. and it will that do the same for our clients. And therefore how we help our clients and how we fit in with our clients will change our, our square footage, but also our operating model. Mm. What What's the best practice you've seen with leaders having to make enormous strategic decisions without the normal quality of analysis of their options and reliable data to make those decisions? I think there's probably been a greater need for smaller teams of management to make the big decisions. Mm. And what I mean by that is you probably have less access to the whole board. I mean, you do virtually, but it's not ideal. Um, and, and actually, um, the counterfactual position, the more people that come into the room to make the decision with you, the more counterfactual positions are taken. Mm. What I mean by that is... Um, there is so much uncertainty attached to COVID-19 that when you're trying to make a de decision based on your best guess of certainty, the more people in the room, the more versions of uncertainty you face. So I think a lot of the big decisions that I've seen being taken by my business, but a lot of other businesses as well, have been taken with groups of two or three rather than boards of 12. Is that because they they cannot cope with all the different potential yeah. scenarios. I think at the end of the day, again, it goes back to this is a time for communicating clearly, confidently and simply. And therefore, I think people have had to make more unilateral decisions because of that. And again, because people are isolated, they've had more thinking time on their own than ever before. Mm. So I am, you know, and I don't think it's extreme positions. I think it just complicates it if you have too many people involved. So just as an example, we were putting a memo out on something recently. Uh, sorry, a script out uh, that I wasn't giving a voicemail. Yeah. And uh, we shared it with all 30 people. And the commentary that I got back about the words you'd change and the bits you'd change was enormous because every single member wasn't, if you like, they didn't have the parameters of a board discussion. Mm. They all took it off to their own house desk and yeah. gave their own edited version. So yeah. what you got back was very different to the first version, which if I discussed it in a boardroom, it might have changed 20 percent because it was discussed or looked at individually by 13 people. It changed 100 mm -hmm. percent. I ended up virtually going back to the first version because the important thing for me, again, was clarity and simplicity. And a lot of the points that were made would have taken me a foot away from that.
So I think decision making has changed because of the isolationist nature of this illness. And in terms of the decision making, I mean, obviously a big part of your your work is to help your clients see clearly what their options are, mm -hmm. having had analysis done maybe of of what's happening in a market or what's happening with competitors and doing some detailed financial modeling. But a, a lot of leaders don't have the time to do that now, do they? Are you finding the nature of your work is changing and you're having to give advice without all of that backup? Um, I think it's a different, I think you could be right. I, I suppose, what I've noticed is that uh, for the first five or six weeks of this, you know, businesses like mine probably dealt with the order book they had, mm. but we didn't get any new orders particularly, uh, apart from really critical ones. Uh, but I've seen an increase in discretionary spend over the last few weeks because I think people have got to get on with stuff. We're in this situation for the medium term. Therefore, it's not going to pass. The cloud isn't going to pass. So you have to deal with what you've got. Um, and people are running out of money or issues are happening. They've got to get on with them. So discretionary spend has increased. Um, people are just not used to buying virtually. Mm. Um, and now they are. So I think the bigger change, actually, is not people having less information. It's building rapport virtually with someone that's going to provide a key piece of advice to them and their board that in the past they would never have done virtually. Mm. They would never have felt comfortable unless they'd met, known, got used to someone being with them and everything else for the size and scale of decision making they're going to make with that person. That's no longer available. So I think that virtual and it therefore moves to businesses like mine, the importance in IT. Mm -hmm. So as you build rapport, if the IT fails or the IT is poor or the sound is poor, then it impacts the, the credibility of the person that you're meeting. Mm -hmm. So I think the importance of IT and the importance of building rapport virtually is something that we never actually had in our armory and we're all having to learn at speed. I'd, I'd like to talk about this, the pace of business disruption? I think that was happening before COVID. Mm -hmm. I, I think the disruption we were seeing in the marketplaces was happening before COVID. Uh, the impact of what was coming at us with climate change was coming. Uh, so I think those issues of technology and climate change were coming at us and they were forcing uh, a cliff edge to a lot of businesses. Mm. I think for the weaker of those businesses, the cash impact of COVID has accelerated things. Mm. But I, I think that speed of change through the mega trends has probably been accelerated for some sectors and less so for others. But that, if you like, that momentum is there. It's just accelerating. If you're in a travel or hospitality sector, then any problems you had before have been you know, multiplied many times and you could never have seen that coming. I don't know, and the same for retail. Other sectors, probably less so, but the momentum is still there and it, you won't turn the clock back now. No. And again, and, and, and against all of that, you end up coming back to how do you keep your employees and your clients alongside you? And that comes back to trust and communications. And that's really interesting because COVID has put a strain on building trust and communications in the old fashioned way. Is there anything else that you think is going to be significantly different 
over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I've got this belief. There's two things, right? I've got this belief that the media through COVID has become incredibly negative to try and sell newspapers, incredibly. Um, and, you know, their focus on the negatives and what people have got wrong, be it PPE equipment, be it Western Health Service or whatever, uh, and, and ignoring the fact that this is a black swan event, right? No one could ever prepare for it. Yeah, I'm sure there's things people could have done better, but they're doing their best. And actually, if you don't make a decision, you're definitely wrong. If you make a decision and it's not as good as it could have been, well, you're wrong as well. So there's a, there's a less forgiving environment. I think they're actually out of step with the national psyche, mm. personally. I, I think the national psyche is far more forgiving. Not of the politicians. It's not a personal political statement. I just think people accept that this is pure uncertainty and people are doing the best they can. So I think that's out of step. I think there's also something that's out of step is the intergenerational fairness issue. The people that are going to have to use the technology and they're going to change the world are having their lives taken away from or put on hold. And I, however sad we are for the older cohort population, which includes me, they're not going to be the biggest losers, I think, of the 18 to 25 year olds who are having years of their lives put on hold. Mm. And they are the future. They are the people who are going to pay for our pensions. They are the people who are going to pay for the future of this country. That's out of sync at the moment. That isn't getting in the news. The news is all about care homes. And that's, you know, I, I lost my mother recently who was in the care home. You know, I'm not, it's not, I just think there's a balance there and there is going to be some kind of intergenerational backlash, I fear, unless we start to acknowledge who's really paying for this. And that I think has been missed as well. So those two things. But the other, the other, the other factor I think is really interesting as well is the last recession that everyone remembers is 2008. Mm. I see two major differences, 2008. And this will be a recession, obviously, as we come out of this. One is, um, I think business has been far more responsible this time. I think in 2008, the business world was very quick to say it wasn't me. I think business this time around has said, well, it might not have been me, but what are we going to do about it? So I think the commentary about pay cuts, the commentary about looking after employees, the commentary in general out there by business, I think has been really good. I don't think they've actually business has got as much credit for what it's said and done this time around so far. Mm. Um, so I think that's a positive. And the other one is in 2008, it was a liquidity crunch that caused it rather than a black swan event. Uh, this isn't a liquidity crunch. You know, there is twice as much dry powder out there to invest in assets as existed in 2008. I think the number is $1.5 trillion extra capital availability for equity investment. Mm. And that would multiply by debt. So I think, that the exit from this recession is going to be deals led where whether it's bottom fishing or the adjustment in asset prices or hostile takeovers, this is going to be a very, very different exit to 2008. Yeah. And again, I am, I've, I've talked about that to a number of journalists. I've talked about a number of news outlets. They've not been interested in that because it doesn't fit with the kind of disaster scenario. Yeah. So I do think that again, it goes to our responsibilities as leaders to our people we have to give the counterfactual about the positivity and the opportunity to engage with clients, to engage in transactions that will inevitably follow. Yeah, I agree. I, I think a lot of our, a lot of our clients are thinking about if they come out of this with cash on the balance sheet, this is a big opportunity Huge. Huge. for them to consolidate markets, to enter new markets uh, and to end up as a much stronger business than they would have been beforehand. 
No, I think that's right. I mean, there's a bit of an interesting one at the moment because I think banks and the government's furloughing is probably giving some forgiveness to some poorer players in the marketplace, mm-hmm. which is unnatural from a kind of um, uh, a market theory point of view, but that will pass. Mm-hmm. And the insolvencies that will follow aren't necessarily bad things for a lot of people. These are companies that will fail anyway. They're just being accelerated in their demise mm-hmm. and the assets and scarce resources will be reallocated. That's what kind of happens in a market economy. That's not how the press game will see it, but it's a bit like jobs being lost. I mean, jobs have always been lost. It's whether jobs are created that really matters. And I think that's our responsibility. Kevin, thank you so much. Brilliant. Nice to spend some time with you. Appreciate having those rich insights. This is Lloyd Wigglesworth from the Alexander Partnership talking to Kevin Ellis, Chairman and Senior Partner of PWC. PWC.